It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Please put your hands together and help me welcome the great Eva Fairchild to the Ambiguously Blind podcast. <laughs> Please. Hello, John. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, you're welcome. It is a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you once again. We, we met many years ago, and we'll get into that get into that story here in just a little bit, but um, I wanted to kind of start by kind of introducing yourself. Now, we we know what you do, and we'll talk about kind of what you've done. Um, A lot lot of work with the AFB and and some work with the uh, Texas Department of Visit Rehabilitative Services and was called that when I worked there. It's now the Texas Workforce Commission Vocational Rehabilitation Services. Yeah, that is a that's a mouthful. A lot of, lot of words there, but um, assistance for folks with low or or no vision. Um, you've got a long history of that, and we're going to get into some of that. But how did you get started in that field? And and actually, before I even say that, um, are you an Aggie? I am an Aggie. I'm class of '78. My husband is class of 79. Our daughter is class of 2003. Our son-in-law is class of 2002. It's a long string. Oh, man. Yeah, that. Um, wow. So you're not the first Aggie on the podcast. I've had a few of them, but notably my wife is an Aggie, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, which makes a lot of sense now. That I, I can see how that, you know, I like I, I affectionately call it a cult kind of thing, right? It's, it's a big, it's a big family. If you cut us, we do bleed maroon. Yeah, I believe (laughs) it's a great school. It's a great school. And I, I, I say that in jest, um, but Aggies do stick together. And, um, my wife has two brothers and they're both Aggies also. So we'll see what happens as our little ones go forward. But, um, I'm not an Aggie. I'm a red Raider, which nobody knows who they are anyway, but that's out in West Texas, but that's that's a different story, and and we're not here to we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Neva and uh, and her journey with with sight loss. What does that look like for you, Neva? So I was born in 1956. So you do the math um, and figure out how old I am. Man, I was thinking you were like 29. Oh, you're so sweet. No, I am 66. I uh, was born at a time when premature babies were put in incubators to save their lives. And it was thought at the time that the high oxygen levels damaged their eyesight. And for a lot of babies born during that time, they were blind because of what was known as retrolental fibroplasia. I can't spell it. And I had to practice to be able to say it. <laughs> yeah, bet. 30 years later... <laughs> I find out that although my vision was poor, most babies went totally blind. I had some vision, hold a book right up to my nose when I was in first grade, and I could see, run, Jane, run, see, Jane, run, run, tip, run. Remember those books? I I can't say that I do, but I believe what you're saying, yeah. It was was the the standard Dick and Jane first grade. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... uh, that persisted. I could read print till about fourth grade when the print got smaller and 
probably my eyesight was getting worse, although it wasn't noticeable to me or or to my parents. And my parents fought very hard for me to be in public school all through my education. We moved around a lot. My dad was in the Air Force. So I went to 14 different schools in 12 years. Mm, wow. That is, that is something. Yeah. That's some change right there. And every time I changed schools, the administrators wanted my parents to send me to the school for the blind and they refused and said, no, you figure out how to teach her. Well, what that boiled down to was, Neva, you figure out how to learn in an environment where you can't see beans. (laughs) And so I was a mediocre student at best. I went off to college, thought I wanted to be a teacher who would specialize in helping kids who are blind or visually impaired to go to public schools and get well-rounded educations that, like I had, and that would lead them into great opportunities with employment. I, I always had a desire to work. I, not working was never an option in my mind, and mostly that comes from my parents, because if it was to be done, I had to do it. And I thank them for that. Up in heaven, they know how appreciative I am that they gave me that strong upbringing in figure it out, kid, just do it. Maybe they invented the Nike slogan. I don't know. Hmm, maybe. That'd, that'd be good. There'd probably some money for them if that was the case. Yeah. Would have been, yeah. Well, I got to my 30s and I had returned to college and the low vision aids that I got in my early 20s when I was working part-time when our first child was young, I got this amazing pair of readers that I could read any size print, even the tiniest print, I could read it. I was in heaven. I read until my left eyeball wanted to jump out of my head and run away because it was single vision because the magnification was so strong, there was no way I could have binocular vision. So I used one eye to read. I could read the phone book. I could read magazines. I could read mail order. I could read one of those tiny print Bibles that people hand out on the street corners for free. Hmm. And I loved it. And that worked for me for about 10 years. And partway through my master's degree, because I I had left college when my husband and I married, And we figured we made a baby. We probably ought to get a job to feed that baby. So when he got his master's degree, that's what we did. And I was a senior and I, and I, you know, we just dropped out or I dropped out and we moved to Dallas from college station and we had another child. And then when she went to kindergarten, I said, I better get back into school. And I had already figured out I didn't want to be a teacher. I had volunteered in my son's classroom and my son's elementary school in the library enough to know that if I was a classroom teacher and elementary school was my focus, I, I like the little kids, um, I would have nothing left to give over to or to give to my family at the end of the day. So I knew I didn't want to go back to school to be a teacher, but I didn't know what. So I went back to community college and got into rehabilitation because the counselor in the Office for Students with Disabilities had graduated from UT Southwestern's Rehabilitation Science Program. She told me about it. I read up on it. Sounded like the greatest thing since sliced bread. I enrolled the next semester 
I went straight through that and into my master's degree. And about a year into my master's degree, those reading glasses stopped working for me. And all of a sudden, I couldn't read my textbooks anymore. And master's programs are pretty heavy on reading, especially in the social sciences. And I went back to the retina specialist and to the uh, other eye doctors. And that's when I was diagnosed with a form of retinitis pigmentosa called cone rod degeneration. It acts and looks a lot like macular degeneration, except it doesn't stop with the macula. It goes and spreads all throughout the retina. So basically, I lost my cone cells, which are your sharp vision cells, your color vision cells. And those that are, are concentrated in the central part of your retina, I lost those first. And then I continued to lose the rod cells, the peripheral vision, the night vision uh, over the years. And between my 30s and 40s, I still had a lot of functional vision. I could see landmarks as we rode down the street. I could tell oh, there's Wendy's, there's Target. Uh, turn at the next light and that'll be my street, you know, and... <laughs> The paratransit drivers never understood how I could possibly uh, know where I was going, but yeah, I did. Quite, quite. You might even say ambiguously blind at that time, right? Exactly, exactly. But also during that time, I learned to use a white cane because my vision had gotten to a point that I was walking very slowly in our neighborhood. I knew our neighborhood like the back of our hand. I knew the shopping center that I could get to easily like the back of my hand, but I couldn't anticipate if someone was walking at me or across in front of me. I couldn't always tell where the step downs and the step ups were. And so I I, I just walked really slow. Um, I can't imagine people must have thought, oh, there goes that 30-year-old old lady. Wonder what she's going so slow for. <laughs> and then somebody um, said to me right before I went back to school, uh, when I asked them, how am I going to get around this campus? How am I going to know where to go, where the steps and the curbs and the stairs and all that kind of stuff are? Uh, how am I going to find my classroom? Because when I did that at 18 at Texas A&M, my buddies showed me around, right? I knew people and, and they showed me where all my classes were. And slowly but surely, I memorized that whole campus. I knew where all the curbs and, and all that were. Well, <laughs> this brilliant lady who I eventually worked with uh, at the state named Joyce Alexander said, Nika, have you ever thought about using a long white cane? And I said, what's that? Mm, yeah. Because I had gotten to 30 plus years of age. I think I was probably 31 at that time. Never knew what that was. Never met another blind person that used one. Never saw another blind person that used one because pretty much when I was out and about, I could see people about four or six feet away. That's it. No more. Pretty remarkable that it, it took that long to be introduced to that. Yeah. And so I just thought it was normal that I never went anywhere for the first time by myself. If I was going to go somewhere and somebody couldn't come with me, I would go, uh, I would take like a, a pre-visit yes. and learn the space. And then I could go back on my own and be fine. I thought that was normal for a person with low vision. It wasn't until my O&M instructor showed me what a cane could do for me and, and pointed out that people who are blind don't have to wait for someone else to take them where they want to go. And I tried that cane for the first time. I, I felt like a bird set free out of a cage. I picked my head up. I started walking faster. 
I could at that time use my vision to look around and see the houses around me and the stores around me and the things on the aisles in the in the stores around me, those kinds of things. But I didn't have to worry about, am I about to run into something or someone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really was freeing. And so now my vision has diminished to the point that I don't see anything anymore. I guess it was probably 15 years ago I lost my color vision. Everything just kind of all started looking the same color, just lights and darks of the same shade. And then those shades started fading into weird lights and darks. And now I am sitting in my office and the only light source that I can think of in here is maybe the power uh, button on my computer or something. And yet this room looks lit to me. It looks bright up above and dark down below. And it's nothing but my brain filling in what it thinks ought to be there. I have learned not to trust that because I'll go, where is the light on in here? And I'll look and I'll look and I'll look and everything's turned off. And then I'll go to bed and my husband will say, why didn't you turn the lights off in your office? (laughs) Mostly because I didn't see them and I didn't remember that I turned them on because Mm. I was in a Zoom meeting earlier and people needed to see more than a silhouette, you know. So I'm functioning as if I'm totally blind, even though there's these funny lights and darks now. So was it the lack of oxygen or over um, abundance of oxygen that caused the issue in the incubator, do you think? I mean, I want to make sure I was clear on that. Essentially, the overabundance of oxygen was what was thought to damage the premature baby's eyes. Because I've heard that, yes. Mm-hmm. But 40 years later, 35 years later anyway, that has all been disproven. So in the 90s, when I was first working for the state and taking eye medical training to learn how to read doctor's reports about people's eye conditions, it had been proven that the reason babies lost vision was not because of the oxygen, was, but was because the body's amazing ability to build new vessels to try to feed starving cells. So the retina is the last place for vessels to develop. And so they don't develop if the baby's born prematurely. And the retina cells start screaming for oxygen and food, please send us food. And so the body makes these vessels and then they're leaky, they're faulty. And just a tiny, tiny bit of leakage from those vessels causes the retina to separate from the rest of the eye. And that's what causes the blindness, not the oxygen. Um, That's interesting because I'd always heard or thought it was the too much oxygen as well. Yep. I'd heard that, but that's not the case anymore. So we're just dispelling myths here too. Well, it's true. And and so now they have this amazing uh, treatment for babies who are premature that when their body starts creating that neovascularization or new vessels, they use this very gentle form of laser to, to freeze those new vessels so that they won't leak. And as the baby matures, vessels to feed the healthy part of the retina that still remains develop. So they may not have full vision, but they will have some vision, even if they're terribly premature. And it's because of that 
treatment of the, to keep the new vessels from, from happening, to let the body go, the baby go ahead and develop normally. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And it's really a, it's, it's kind of a, a miracle if you think about it. Okay. So you're working for the state of Texas with a lot of words, uh, after it organizations with, uh, help helping those with lower no vision. And, and kind of before we started chatting here, we talked a little bit about my interaction with, with them. My sight loss story begins in 98 with bacterial meningitis. And that's when I come to know the Texas commission for the blind. And then the, the name changes going there forward. But, uh, I think there was a chance that we could have run into each other there as mm-hmm. we kind of discussed with my counselor there, but, uh, we definitely ran into you at Esther's place. Oh, okay. You visited Esther's place. I did, which is in Dallas. And I want to want you to give me a little bit of background on Esther's place, but I went there. Um, I don't, I don't remember exactly the reason, but I knew it was a place to, that I needed to go look at for, I, I guess I was, um, that probably had something to do with independent living and, and, a lot to do with maybe technology or something or, or just stuff around the house. I was looking in an apartment by myself and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we got there. I was there with my mother and it's in Dallas somewhere. I know it's relocated now, but it was somewhere kind of. Right. It was in a sketchy part of Dallas, right off of Harry Hines Boulevard and Walnut Hill Lane. Yeah. Okay. That's That sounds about right. Yep. And we went there. And I met with you and you were walking us around the different areas in the living room and the kitchen and the office and some other areas. And we were talking a little bit about phones. And this is this is where the story for me got really interesting because you introduced me to the Motorola Q9. Oh, wow. That was a while ago. A blast from the past because um, up until that point, this would have been, um, I think you started with AFB right around 2008. That's right. And this would have been, I, I might've been there on your first day, maybe. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was 2008 for sure. Okay. Um, I thought it might even be earlier than that, but apparently it couldn't have been since, since you weren't there. So I would say it was probably 2008. I was using a, I had a flip phone that I couldn't see, you know, I couldn't text people even, you know, it's hard to believe it, but even back in those days, we, people would text message. We'd use T9. It was, you'd, you'd use a standard, you know, 10 button key. Mm-hmm thing to, to make letters and the small screen and no color and nothing and you were like you should check this out this is the Motorola Q and it had a pretty good size screen on it and it used a software called the mobile speak smartphone yes that sat on top of the windows mobile operating system which is I can't even believe I'm saying that anymore how old this is but um so that's where like I took a giant leap forward in communication there because like literally I left there and within 24 hours I had a Motorola Q9 and within 24 hours of that I had the mobile speaks smartphone software and I was I was rocking and rolling and that that was kind of one of those things where I didn't really know what I didn't know I don't know how long it had been out prior to that but I only looked back because it really was a kind of a flawed system and it was kind of, you know, it, it was great for the time, I think, because it was really one of the first, if not the first, but the iPhone came out, the iPhone 3GS came out in 2009 and the Q9 was um, never seen again for me, but it was a great transition and gave me a lot of 
I mean, I, I'm not gonna say it changed my life, but it really gave me a lot of hope and encouragement to that, that there were things because I'm using my Zoom text and I'm using screen readers and stuff on the computer, but the mobile stuff where things were moving, and that was kind of the the precursor. So that's um, that's where we met. It's amazing. I uh, loved my Motorola Q and Mobile Speak. Thought I had died and gone to heaven when yeah. I could see who called me and return a call if I missed one. And I could use an address book instead of having to memorize every phone number I ever dialed. That is it. That That's the thing. And I've got really good at memorizing phone numbers too. I used to be good at it. Then I hit my 40s and it got harder. And I thought, hmm, my memory must be uh, lacking. And then I got to my 50s and I said, what memory? <laughs> yeah, but you know, the if you don't, you know, if you don't use that memory muscle, like yes. we're used to, um, we use the contacts in our phones now. And I would say the same, even before, you know, my friends, they would have, you know, traditional or the, the state of the art flip phones in the day, they would have address books and things that they didn't they're like i don't remember anybody's number anymore i'm like i can't relate to that i know everybody's number yeah um but yeah. now i don't there, there's a few numbers from like that are hold back holdouts that people had numbers for the last 30 years that i remember because i remembered them 30 years ago but mm -hmm. any new number i have no idea what it is anymore no i know what you mean it's I, a few swipes away and, and a tap and there we go i know the three people who are most important in my life my husband my son my daughter i know their cell phone numbers and the rest of the world, you're in my contacts yes. and you anyway. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about Esther's Place and kind of the beginning of, of your time with the AFB. I went to work for American Foundation for the Blind in 2008 to oversee Esther's Place, which was a demonstration model apartment that was set up as if someone with vision loss, whether they be totally blind or visually impaired, lived there. But nobody did. I wanted to move in. I asked my boss, Judy Scott, if my husband and I could move in because I liked the idea of a, you know, 15 foot or, okay, 30 foot commute. She didn't think that would be a great idea. But we had a kitchen, a laundry room, a dining room, a living room, an entryway a storage closet, a clothing closet, a bathroom vanity, a bathroom shower and commode, a bedroom, an office, a fun and fitness room, a library, and a technology showroom. It was pretty all-encompassing there, yeah. It is. It was 2,800 square feet, and it was the only place in America at the time, and maybe even still today, where a comprehensive demonstration center is set up with things in live mode so you can sit down and try it. A lot of places put things on shelves. They're still in a package. You can look at that uh, talking gizmo inside its box and, and get told all about what it can do, but you can't take it out and play with it unless you're ready to buy it. And we didn't sell anything at Esther's Place. We we showed people, let them play with it. We had over 500 accessible devices or accommodations on display. And me and our docents could demonstrate every one of them, depending on the person's interest. Yeah, I can remember going through there and there were a lot of things that, that blew me away that I didn't even 
I, I wasn't aware existed. Well, you made a statement before, you don't know what you don't know. And that is so true. How can you imagine that something exists to shake your bed if you've never been able to hear a, an alarm go off in the morning and you can't sleep in your hearing aids and you can't see an alarm clock flash a light? How can you imagine there's some way for you to get out of bed independently every day? Well, there is. And most people just don't find out about these things. Even professionals who work in the field don't necessarily know about all of the things that exist. And we only touched the tip of the iceberg. Some of our main things to demonstrate were lighting changes. For people with low vision, lighting is the secret. And the other side of the secret coin is contrast. So I always knew before I went to work in Esther's place that there were places I went where I could function better. I could see more things around me and I could, I could distinguish things better. And what I discovered is it had to do with the amount and kind of light that was available and the contrast that was built into the environment. Most places don't do that consciously. What we encouraged people to do as much as possible was to build that into their world as they could. So that let's say they were buying a new uh, chair for the living room and the walls are white and the floor is tan. Yet don't buy a white chair. It's going to blend right in. You're not going to be able to see it. Buy a dark brown chair. Buy a black chair. Buy a burgundy chair, a navy blue chair. I don't care, but buy something dark so that it contrasts. When you're picking out an apartment and you go into the apartment to look it over and the kitchen is white on white on white on white, it looks like you're walking into a snowstorm when you walk in the kitchen, can't find anything in there. But the next apartment might have had some decorating skills and maybe they put a darker countertop on top of white or light cabinets and the floor is darker than any of that. And all of a sudden, you can see where the edges are. You can see where things are located. We bought a black refrigerator to go on against white walls and light floors. And I have to admit that before I learned about how important contrast is, Black appliances never appealed to me. <laughs> yeah. Why would you want a black refrigerator? That's that's morbid. That's gross. Yeah, it works real good when you can't see much. Yeah, I can't underscore that enough. The uh, in my in my world, contrast is king. Um, mm -hmm. It is it is it is very important. And you know, especially even when you're not necessarily just things in your house, uh, but like stair steps are. Yes. are one of these things where there's some safety issues and there the place that I go I I just where I where I get my hair cut they just moved locations and the new location they're at has two flights of stairs to go up there's an elevator but there's also two flights of stairs I'm usually a stairs kind of guy and they're made of tile and the Ooh. same tile on the floor is the exact same tile as the steps and it just looks like all one piece of tile to me. I cannot, it, it's, so I go down the stairs very, very slowly. And that can be remedied with a um, strip of like tactile or like sandpaper. I don't know what it's called, but like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sandpaper, like tape 
at the mm-hmm. edge. You'll, you'll see that where either the edge of the steps will be will be painted differently or colored differently or have some texture to them, which um, got to talk to those guys about getting something on those stairs. But those kind of things where, where contrast is would make a world of difference. I can certainly relate. It does. And, and we had a stairwell uh, that went nowhere in Esther's place. It was a little cubby hole that went three steps up that people could try. Mm-hmm. On one side, the banister matched the wall. On the other side, the banister was painted a contrasting color. It was easy to grab. You knew right where it was right away. And the, the edges of the stairs had the uh, no slip edging like you're talking about that was a contrasting color to the carpet that covered the rest of the stair. We advocated for people to go back to their apartment complex, to go to their favorite restaurant, to go to their barbershop and say, hey, this is a hazard. And there's a lot of us out here who don't have 20-20 vision. You may not know it because most people don't walk up and say, hello, my name is Neva. I can't see. Uh, that just doesn't happen. People don't do that. No, they don't. And it, it, it really, I was kind I was pretty surprised with all of the attention that's been paid to accessibility and all the buzzwords with inclusion and all that stuff that's going on, that there really are places, even in the area where we live, Neva, everything is relatively new. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like we live on the East Coast where you've got buildings that are 200 years old or 50 years old. Most of these buildings are like the building where my barber is, is is no more than 10 years old. Right. And you, you think that those things would be built into those places. And it's, I'm always amazed that that's not always the case. No, it's not. And this is a policy issue that American Foundation for the Blind is working on in architectural accessibility. People in wheelchairs are priority. Okay. Mm-hmm. Get a ramp. That's all you need for accessibility. Get a ramp. Uh, right. Wait, yeah. a ramp that isn't marked well with tactile uh, bumps to tell me that I'm on a ramp is going to be the death of me because I can be walking along a sidewalk uh, in a shopping center or in a neighborhood and find myself in the middle of the street and never know I went down a ramp because mm-hmm. it's gradual. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a it's a matter of advocacy and policy. And, and you probably, if you use the elevator, you probably would find Braille in the elevator. Because they did figure out with the ADA and and with the Architectural Barriers Act that um, people who are blind need to be able to push the right buttons. So there's probably Braille. There may even be large raised numbers. Um, There may even be high contrast numbers on the buttons. Mm -hmm. But in terms of blind access to the world, that's about where it stops. Mm. And lighting and glare control and contrast is is just not thought of it's out there the the criteria the the regulations but they're not regulations they're recommendations that's what i meant to say the recommendations are out there to architects and and builders and designers to design for people with visual impairment they're just not paid attention to or acknowledged not not to spend too much time on this because I'm now I'm just I'm just complaining I guess but like with the stair thing, I think there's an application that makes those safer for everybody, um, because these 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 are tile steps in this venue and those things get wet, you know that that st- the non stick non slip traction on the edge of those steps would would be good for anyone, 
Um, and as you said, there there are people that are blind or visually impaired, but visually impaired is like that's a large swath of people. You know, pe- people with 2080 vision that's correctable with lenses would be considered in that field at, at some point. So uh, they don't have their glasses that day, or they're broken, or something happens and they can't wear them, or whatever. That that's huge for a lot of people, and um, I, I agree that I, I don't know I don't know what I, I guess we need to turn the recommendations into regulations, right? Is that the deal? That's that's what we need to do. Uh, there's a lot of people that fight that because they say it's too expensive. Uh, they they don't get the point. But when you look at the numbers of people who are blind or visually impaired in America today uh, that are over 65, just that number right now is, is something like 9% of the population. That's one in 10. Hmm. Yeah. One in 10 are having trouble seeing well enough to do things. And then when you figure in bad lighting, let's say it's a super glary bright day, that washes out some of what people can see, even when they have 20-20 vision. And if it's a super dark evening and there's no good ambient lighting around, that affects everybody. Sure does, yeah. So Esther's Place also put on... uh, Webinars and we didn't call them webinars then, did we? Esther's <laughs> Place also put on seminars where we brought people to the center to um, explore a topic. It could be uh, diabetic foot care, it could be recreation and leisure. Uh, it was even iPhone uh, classes at one point when the iPhone was was actually getting into the hands of people and voiceover was being used, but they didn't really know how to do it. And so, you know, we brought people in and then, of course, we wanted them to take a tour and see what Esther's Place had to offer. And usually that sparked enough interest for them to come back and visit us again. And that was the lovely thing about the difference between working at Esther's Place for the AFB uh, at the Center on Vision Loss and working for the state was that there was no eligibility criteria. If you had a question or an interest And how could I live if I couldn't see? How would I check my children's temperature if I couldn't see? How would I, um, I don't know, do anything, set the microwave if I couldn't see? I could show you. We could could take people on tours of Esther's Place and, and answer their questions and meet their needs and be very specific about it. Whereas with the state, there's eligibility criteria. The government, the federal government gives the state government money to put on a program and they have rules and you have to follow those rules or you're breaking federal law. And so there's nothing more heartbreaking than to meet a person who says, I have uh, I have 2060 vision, but it's really affecting me. I'm having trouble with this and this and this and this. And to have to tell them as a state employee, I'm sorry, you're not eligible for services. I can't help you. Heartbreaking. I bet. Sorry, you're not blind enough. That's not <laughs> anybody wants to say, right? Right. I felt so, I don't know, free when I first came to Esther's place to be able to talk to anybody and show them what was possible. And that was one of AFB's mottos or our our um, tagline is expanding possibilities for people with vision loss because if you look at the stats over the years honestly the needle hasn't moved about the same percentage of people who are blind are working today 
We're working when the ADA was passed in 1990. We're working in uh, 1950. Uh, we're, We're working probably even before the vocational rehabilitation system existed, which was started right after World War I. Wow. You're saying that there hasn't been a a tremendous amount of growth in the workforce. No, not percentage wise. More people certainly are working now than we're working then, but that's because we've got more blind people or visually impaired people on the planet. Okay. And part of that has to do with public perception. Blind people can't do anything. Why would I hire a person who's blind to do for a job? They can't do a job. Are you kidding? If I close my eyes, I can't do my job. How could a blind person do a job? Obviously, obviously. (laughs) That's what employers think. Vocational rehabilitation is working to change that. Uh, AFB is working to change that perception. But it's it's a tough needle to move. And mostly because the 70% unemployment rate that is touted among people with disabilities is actually even a little bit higher if you're blind because blindness is the number one scariest disability to people who are able-bodied. Is that right? It is. AFB did a survey. It's been probably 15, 20 years ago now, but we did a national survey uh, to see uh, what people feared most and people feared blindness more or losing their vision more than cancer, more than AIDS, more than a leg or arm amputation. Wow. Okay. I'm like, really? You'd rather be dead than blind? But that's how people feel. I guess that's just kind of a lack of education or something along those lines. It is a lack of awareness of what is possible for people who have vision loss. And hence the the motto, expanding possibilities for people with vision loss, so that we expand those possibilities to the point that the world goes, huh, look at what that blind lady's doing over there. I didn't know a blind person could use a computer. Uh, I didn't know a blind person could cross a street by themselves. Most people run up and try to help me when I try to cross the street. And most of the time, I'm fine. I can do it on my own. So it's, it's changing policy. It's changing perceptions. And for some of that 70% that's unemployed, it's convincing them to try again, using technology, learning new skills, working through their network to find an opportunity for them to do what they want to do. And that's a tough sell because it's pretty demoralizing to come out of high school, come out of college, come out of your PhD and not be able to find a job because nobody's willing to give a blind guy a chance. Yeah, that is that is demoralizing. Yeah. And so eventually they give up and they stay home and maybe they have a family and maybe they're integral to the operating of that family, you know, uh, moms that stay at home and raise children. What a concept. Uh, I was lucky enough to do that to at least until kindergarten. You know, dads that stay home and clean the house and cook meals and send the kitties off to school and meet them when they come back to the bus stop down the corner. You know, maybe that's maybe that's what they're doing. But I don't think so. Mostly the people I have encountered in my 30 plus years in the field have given up and are not doing much, doing 
nothing what what they feel is constructive or productive. And I think that's a pity because I think there's something to to do no matter what your place in life is, whether you must stay home, fine and dandy. Let's build some skills to do things at home. Let's let's get involved in our community. Let's volunteer for a committee at school or at church or on the, you know, council for the city or the county or something. Absolutely. There, there are opportunities. There are. You have to have the confidence and the bravery to step out there and and put yourself in a vulnerable place out of your comfort zone. I think that's one of the ways that we will change public perception because people who know you and people who know me know we can do stuff. Right? Yeah, at least they at least I think I can do stuff and if if they do I've done a pretty good job of convincing convincing them. I just got to convince myself of that sometimes, right? Well, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do. If you said, "Neva, you can climb Mount Everest." I would say, "I'll leave that to Eric Weinmayer. Thank you very much." <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, but you know, I serve on so many volunteer boards and committees and councils because I want to give back. I want to be out there doing things. I do not want to be relegated to the couch. No, not at all. That is, that's not my MO either. Yeah. Right. So when I was early in my career with the state, my boss at the time encouraged me to run for an office in our state affiliate of our professional association, the Association for Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind and Visually Impaired. Yeah, a lot of words. Yeah. AER is the short form for that, but it's everybody who works in the field of blindness, teachers, O&Ms, BRTs, counselors, technology trainers, everybody. Okay. Luckily, I lost (laughs) because I was not ready to be president of a state association. But the next year I ran for secretary. I'm a fabulous note taker. I'm a fast typist. I have a cute little device that I actually still have called a PacMate that I can type out notes on in a heartbeat. And I did that for five or six years. Then I ran for president and I was ready and I won and it was great. And 20 some odd years later, I ran for president of the International Association. And I'm now past president. I'm in my my fifth and sixth year of presidency. You're two years president-elect, two years president, and now I'm past president. And it's the most fulfilling thing to me to be involved and be able to give back and to be able to share my views and my dedication with boards, with councils, with committees that need to know what's at issue in the world of helping people who are blind or have low vision to achieve their dreams. And really, that's what it boils down to is helping people achieve their dreams. And I think that kind of dovetails into what you were doing at the AFB, maybe now or at least in the last couple of years with the Blind Leaders Development Program. Is that, yes. Does that kind of fit into that mindset as well? Absolutely. This is a unique program at AFB for early to mid-career individuals who are blind or have low vision to be paired with a mentor who is mid to late career but has leadership experience and is also blind or visually impaired. 
A lot of leadership programs you hear about are for youth, 18 to 22 year olds. You need leadership training. Well, sure you do. But leadership training when you're 18 to 22 is very different. And at the AFB Blind Leaders Program, we are helping these folks to, to learn leadership skills to be able to move up within their organization or to go out into the community and assume positions of leadership eventually. So they might volunteer to be on a nonprofit board, or they might take on an extra duty at work that isn't really related to their job, but is related to the company, like serving on a committee or a council or planning an event or uh, working on an awards committee, those kinds of things that give them the opportunity to stretch their wings and, and show what they can do. And then because they're doing that, other people around them go, huh, look what George can do. I never knew George could do that. Did you know a blind guy could do that? And most of the people in the room would say, no, we didn't know it. And isn't he terrific? And maybe it changes perceptions of blind people who come and apply for jobs later. Maybe George moves up into a position where he's a hiring manager or he's leading a team. And he wouldn't have done that without the Blind Leaders Program unless he was lucky enough to have a mentor in his life who could help him walk that walk and talk that talk as a person who is blind or visually impaired. Most of our fellows, which is what we call our early to mid-career folks, and our mentors both grow in the program because who can't help but grow if you're learning something new? And we all have room to improve. So even our mentors say that they have grown and learned. But mostly it's about developing confidence, developing techniques, and, and putting into practice behaviors that are associated with good leaders. And the program we use is called the Leadership Challenge by Barry Posner and James Kuzis. And it's a 30-plus year evidence-based behavioral program that basically says leaders are not born, they are developed. And once you know the 30 behaviors associated with good leadership and you strive to put those behaviors into practice, like recognizing others for their accomplishments. In an office setting, how many times do people go out of their way to say, Hey, Julia, that was a great presentation you did yesterday. I was very impressed with what you did. Nobody pats people on the back. The, the attaboys are missing in our world. But that is one behavior that good leaders display. And you can learn to do that. And there's 30 of them. It's not the be-all, end-all list, but it's a really good comprehensive list. And our blind leaders are exposed to it and they get uh, training, they get practice sessions, we meet virtually for happy hour, alcohol is optional, <laughs> we meet for uh, spotlight on success once a month where my boss, Sylvia Perez, pulls people from her vast network to come and talk about different topics. And these are people who work for Fortune 500 companies or they've started their own entrepreneurial uh, endeavor, people who are highly successful, who just 
happen to also be blind or visually impaired. That sounds like a great uh, group or. It's a program. Yeah, program. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a great program. So how do if people want to know more about that or, or find out details, where do they go for that? They would go to our website, www.a is in American, F as in foundation, B as in blind.org slash blind leaders, all one word, B-L-I-N-D-L-E-A-D-E-R-S. Our application period isn't open yet, but it will be sometime this spring and we'll be recruiting for a new cohort. We call each group a cohort. We've had three thus far. The third cohort is a little over halfway through. And it's it's a marvelous program. I wish it had been around when I was a 30-something or a 40-something. Um, our ages range from mid-20s to early 70s. Um, and not all of the 60-year-olds are mentors. Some of those 60-year-olds are fellows because they don't feel they have the leadership skills they want and they want to develop them. And, and we don't turn, turn them away if they have potential. Sure. Yeah. That sounds super interesting. I'll, we'll link to that. Uh, we'll, we'll list the website down below and also the book. There's a link to the, to the book. I don't remember. I can't remember the name of it. The leadership challenge. Yeah. I, uh, we talked about, I had Kirk Adams on a couple of episodes ago and he mentioned that book too. So, um, I guess I need to read that too. Huh? I think you do. Um, maybe you even need to apply. I probably should. So at the time of this recording, this is a uh, winter. Um, springtime is when the, the new folks come on, right? Yeah, the applications go live. And uh, probably uh, the start date for the cohorts is going to be July 1st from now forward. We varied those a little bit, but we're trying to get to a, a standard pattern so people can anticipate. Awesome. Well, that's incredible, Neva. I appreciate you sharing a little bit about that. I think that's interesting. Hopefully lots of other people think it's interesting too, because I think it sounds like a, a wonderful program. I hope so too. I think it is. I didn't start out overseeing it. I was a mentor in the first cohort and my boss got a promotion and she asked me to oversee this program in July of 2020. So I'm coming up on three years. It's been a rewarding and amazing experience to learn from and learn with all of the amazing people that have been a part of it. Our goal is within five years of the creation of the program to graduate 100 new blind or visually impaired leaders and basically release them into the world to go do good things. Oh my gosh, blind leaders in the wild. That could be, that sounds dangerous. Yeah, we could have a we could have a documentary on that, I think. <laughs> You're a woman on the move. It doesn't sound like you like to sit around. You said the couch isn't for you. So what other things you got going on? There's a lot of things. I'm a grandmother, which is my first joy in life. I'm a knitter, which I didn't learn until I was in my 50s. And I love to make things to give away. People in Texas don't need knitted hats or scarves all that often. So I had to stop giving my family hats and scarves and start giving things away. I'm a game show host on a team talk chat site for blind or visually impaired people. I love playing games. And unfortunately, I'm married to a man who doesn't love to play games. Oh, love, love makes, love will make you do some crazy things, you know? Well, 
you know, it's okay. He's, he's got his, he's got his, uh, his good points. We've been married 46 years now. So, you know, something going on right there. So what's the game show? Um, I do, I do everything. I do trivia games. I do word games, uh, password lingo, chain reaction, uh, trivial pursuit, and it's all audio. So people can play without being able to see a screen and that kind of thing. And then the thing that is newest for me is Toastmasters. I joined Toastmasters uh, a little over a year ago, and I am learning about public speaking. And it is such a rewarding and exciting organization to be a part of. I've grown. I'm helping other people grow. And I'm excited to be a part of it. And we have two different that I know of two different online Toastmasters groups that are completely accessible to a person who is blind. So you can make speeches, but you can also function as a role player in the meeting, like keeping time or counting the ahs, the ums, and the errs, or watching for grammar errors and introducing a new word to the group each week and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's so much fun. Um, And I'll share that link with you if you'd like to add it to, uh, I'll share any of these links I've talked about. Yeah. I'm interested in the, uh, the game show stuff, but um, actually Toastmasters is on my list, Neva. So this is, um, I don't know, lots of things that we need to be getting together on here. Apparently. I think there's a little bit of the Holy spirit going on here. (laughs) Amen. I appreciate that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's been really great chatting with you, Neva. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. And uh, I'm going to go back on, I still have my hard drive, uh, you know, my external hard drive with all my reports from when I worked for the state. I'm going to go back and see if I can find you. Oh goodness. I don't know. I don't know if they go back that far. They may not. And I promise not to share it with anybody (laughs) in a secure place. But um, the other thing is, is that I do think I remember talking with you in the assistive technology showroom about my Motorola Q. And that's a great memory. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy when I hear from anybody's anybody who I've touched their life in some little bitty way. Because, you know, it's it's I'll use a Mother Teresa quote. It's doing little things with great love that really changes the world. And and that's what I try to do in my work is change the world one little tiny step at a time. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com. <laughs>